in which I, Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a person with opinions about the plot of an opera, and we probably ruin it for everybody. Each week, Amanda has no idea what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is, and since I already did a Strauss bio back in episode three, I'm just going to spitball on Strauss for a little bit until Tina thinks I've done enough, because Lord knows, y'all need to hear me run my mouth more often. Amanda, you have one minute on the clock. What? Just kidding. No, you don't. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> At your leisure, set, uh-huh. go. Okay. So, yeah, uh, Richard Strauss. Richard Strauss was a composer of many things, but not opera, uh, until he decided to foray into opera in the very early 1900s. And by then, he was already an internationally renowned like traveling celebrity composer a la Eric Whitaker I know or conductor not composer I know Tina's looking at me right now like oh god damn it why do you always have to bring Eric Whitaker into this and it's because he's glorious you've just insulted my favorite composer but anyway I keep going (laughs) by comparing him to Eric Whitaker I just mean okay so he was a celebrity conductor and he was like he went around all the places and everybody wanted to have him come conduct um he did write one opera. Uh, his first opera is Salome, and it was like very successful. And all of a sudden, he was like, "Hey, I can write operas!" And he wrote like bam, 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 like five of them in like a ten-year period in the first decade and a half or so of the 1900s. And he used the same librettist for all of them, um, who it was named Hugo Lorenz August Hoffmann von Hofmannsthal. <laughs> This guy needs a new barber because his haircut is terrible. Uh, But otherwise, a very handsome young man. Um, He was an Austrian prodigy, novelist, librettist, poet, dramatist, narrator, and essayist. And yes, I said narrator. Um, And he was of Jewish heritage. And we know about Richard Strauss that he himself was not of Jewish heritage, but he worked with uh, a Jewish librettist later on, Zweig, um, and he also had a Jewish daughter-in-law, um, and he eventually would go on to be the Reichsmusik director, basically like the 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 music guy of the Third Reich. And it's really interesting thinking about how he made the decision, how he kind of justified the decision of holding this position. Tina did do me the favor of telling me that the opera we're talking about tonight is from his earlier career, those five, I'm guessing, one of those five operas that he banged out in the beginning with Hugo von Hoftmannsthal. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what more I should really say about Richard Strauss at this time that you can't learn from the episode three diatribe. Um, and I don't want to get too off topic and start digging into stuff that doesn't have to do with this opera. So let's do it, Tina. Let's do it. All right. Well, I'm actually going to start with something that has nothing to do with this opera. Well, it kind of does, but anyway. You? That's not my <laughs> job. Bitch, don't take my job. Are you familiar with the TV show Deadliest Warrior? 
No. It was on Spike TV like a decade ago. Oh, well, that explains why I'm not familiar with it, Tina. <laughs> okay. What were you doing watching so, Spike TV when you were 20? I <laughs> I was home from college and I was bored. I had to like disappear during Thanksgiving break and I turned on Spike um, TV and I saw The Deadliest Warrior. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to judge anybody for any of the media consumption decisions that they make while they're trying to escape their family in the holidays. So, cheers Thank to that. Thank you. so the deadliest warrior this is this is what it says in wikipedia it's a television program in which information on historical or modern warriors and their weapons are used to determine which of them is the deadliest based on tests performed during an episode so basically if you've ever wondered who would win a battle between a ninja and a pirate this show analyzes what being a ninja or being a pirate is all about they give you historical context and they somehow like this plug this into an algorithm and they pit them against each other and whoever wins the most out of like a thousand rounds is so so it's like fantasy football but for like multi like omni-channel warriors throughout history yes yes people who would never have been right see (laughs) see i love it Why are we talking about this? Okay, so we're talking about this because this opera is kind of like Deadliest Warrior, but instead of pitting different warriors against each other, they're pitting highbrow art against lowbrow art, and they just watch them duke it out. Oh my god. I wonder if I can guess which one this is. Yeah, I bet you can. Give me a second. I don't know. I don't know that I can. Let's see here. It's not Salome. Nope. Because that was his first one, and I don't think that that describes it well. Um, Let's see. I don't think that that describes, unless, are you talking specifically about, like, the plot, or are you talking about the musical type? Both, but definitely specifically the plot and the characters. Okay, so I'm going to say it's definitely not Electra, because that's based on a Greek myth, and it sticks pretty well to the plot. De Rosencavalier is one. De Rosencavalier is my favorite, but it's not that one. No, it's not that one. Um, that one's like his most famous-ish, or at least the most frequently done. Um, and it's more of like a love comedy farce kind of a thing, right? Yeah, and I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, I think no, it actually has the most realistic it. love story in all of opera. Oh my which is saying something. So. It sure is. Well, or is it? <laughs> I feel like it doesn't really actually take much to hold that title. Um, Fair. Uh, I don't know very much about Ariadna, but that I'm leaning towards that right now for my guess. And then the next three that he wrote were later than the time frame that you gave me. Die Frau ohne Schatten. The Egyptian Helena and Arabella, and I don't know anything about any of those, so I can't even really venture a guess. So I'm gonna guess so that what it's is Ariadna. Ariadna ah, of Naxos. Ding, ding, ding. It's Yay. Ariadna of Naxos. <laughs> Fantastic. So, <laughs> I love this opera. It's like of my top three favorite operas. This is number four, but you know, it's, it's still up there. It's so good. So the, the deadly warriors in the case of this opera are actually two things that we've talked about before on this show, Commedia dell'arte and serious opera based on Greek mythology. And these two things that are seemingly opposites are kind of thrown into this opera and they have to kind of duke it out. It's so good. 
I love it. I just want to give a quick, um, if you are not sure what Commedia dell'arte is. Tina's um, about to tell you. Tina's about to tell you. And also you should check out, I believe, episode two, Pagliacci, where we talk about it in greater depth. Very much. Very much. So what I want to do is I want to spend the first half of this episode describing our battling warriors to you. And then I want to give you the battle in the second half after our commercial break. Okay, cool. <laughs> so You are just like tickled. I'm excited because I'm you're giggling so a lot. <laughs> it could also be the wine. So <laughs> did you get started early? You silly woman. Oh yeah. Never do that. <laughs> So, so way back in episode two, like you said, we did Pagliacci. So if you want another example of Commedia, just go back and re-listen to it. It's great. Um, so Commedia dell'arte is this form of improvisational theater that originated in Italy, and the first accounts of it come from around mid 1500s. So, so about that time period. But it's something that's kind of permeated culture through the centuries, whether you know it or not. And a lot of comedy that we know nowadays has its roots in Commedia dell'arte. So Commedia was typically performed by a troupe of actors, and each of them had a specific role or type of stock character. And the characters are like exaggerations of personalities. A lot of them wore a distinctive mask and had stock physical characteristics that would indicate to the audience like, oh, that is this character, and I should make these assumptions about this character. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the characters had a particular regional dialect to go along with their type. And there are four character type groupings. There are the inamorati, and they're usually young lovers who just want to be together, but something just gets in the way. And they typically go by their own names, usually like Isabella and Flavio were like (laughs) popular names for these characters, which is unusual because all the other characters are called by their character type names. So you get like Il Dottore or Pagliacci or whatever, not Pagliacci, but you get the idea. So the second character type is the Vecchia. And these are old men who just, they get in the way of the young lover's plans. They usually wear masks. They have postures associated with their characters, like Pantalone, who stands with his his back hunched and his pelvis thrust forward. And he, like, takes... Pan- Pantalone? Yeah. It just means pants. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, one single pant. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, okay, so sorry. What does pants do? <laughs> he um, so he stands with his back hunched and his pelvis thrust forward, and he like when he walks, he takes like really big strides around the stage, and he's like this old rich man. Anyway, just an example of what they're like. <laughs> I have this picture in my mind that's like an elderly person doing their best impression of the Ministry of Silly Walks from Monty Python. That would be pretty close, except he's wearing a very distinctive Commedia dell'arte mask. That too, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. yeah. <laughs> so the next character type is the Capitani, or the captains, and it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They're military officers with false bravado, and they often go on and on and on when they talk, and they are oblivious to the fact that nobody around them buys their act, and they're usually slimy opportunists, and they're probably cowards who would be the first person to run away from a battle should they encounter <laughs> one. So, Okay, all right, okay, okay. A little bit of social commentary. Good, good, I like it. 
<laughs> that's the great thing about commedia, social commentary. Um, and the fourth category are the zani or the servant characters, and they are they're astute or trickster characters. They're probably the well most well known characters in commedia. And there are two types. There's usually like the silly servant or the cunning servant, and they're often lighthearted and they they work to outsmart their masters, who are the vecchia, and they often help the innamorati get together in the end. Okay. So this opera's commedia troupe strangely only uses the Zani characters, though in an actual commedia, you would need at least three of the four character types to make it work. So it's unusual to have only the cunning servant characters. To make it work just because of the specific roles that they play in terms of telling the story. Yeah. So the way commedia works is that there are these, these plots that have like specific plot points, but how you move in and out of them is very much improvised. And if you only have cunning servants, then you have nobody for them to dupe. And if you have nobody for them to dupe, you don't have those people getting in the way of the young lovers. You know what I mean? Right, so you totally. need different types of characters to make the story sure. work. Yeah. That so, makes sense. yeah. So the the Zani characters in this opera um, are Arlecchino, who we've talked about before. He's Harlequin. Yeah. If you think like bright, motley wearing jester type, he usually has like a red and black mask. Um, Light hearted servant character. He causes general mischief, thwarts the plans of his master, does a lot of pantomime. Very nimble, acrobatic. Like, why simply walk across the stage when you can somersault across the stage instead? <laughs> Does like the coke in the bathroom before every performance. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of Figaro as being an Arlecchino type. Nimble, witty servant. I don't... Okay, from Barbara Seville. Yeah. Episode 8, by the way. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I guess I can't, I can't speak to that. I'm just really, my, my brain is kind of fried. Um, and so I'm running on repeat of just picturing a person somersaulting across the stage with powdered sugar all over the bottom of their face. Should I tell you about the next character then? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so the next character is Columbina. She is a female servant character and she's, actually more cunning than Arlecchino is. And I hate to call her a counterpoint to Arlecchino because it's not always the case. Like she's sometimes his love interest, but she doesn't always accept him and she will sometimes push him around. And she is often the only character with functioning intellect on the stage. And she's very sharp-witted. <laughs> Do you love her? Wow. <laughs> I mean, what's not to like? She can formulate a thought. <laughs> and push the men around well there's that but i suppose it's it's sort of like what did you say a little bit ago that oh that the de rosen cavalier the rosen cavalier de rosen cavalier <laughs> has the most realistic love story in all of opera and you were like which is saying something and i was like is it though and now you're saying look She's got a functioning intellect. Don't you just love her? <laughs> like the bar is really fucking low. <laughs> Guess we're discovering I have low standards tonight. Well, you're doing a podcast with me. So I think everybody was clued so in on the that. Best taste in the world. <laughs> oh, shut up. All right, go on. Go on. Okay. So Scaramuccio, 
Scaramouche. He's always getting himself tangled up in like a curiosity killed the cat type scenario. Hang on. Yep. I knew you were going to pick that one up. <laughs> so Scaramuccio, and you made the reference to Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, Scaramouche. Well, Scaramouche is another name for this character. Queen is actually making a reference to this character. Right, 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 right. But then I was thinking, wasn't that like Anthony Scaramucci? Wasn't he part of the Trump administration for like two years and everybody called him the Mooch? Pause for Google. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's his last name. Anthony Scaramucci. Yeah, dude. Oh, he, he was, was preceded he was by Sean Spicer. Yeah, he was after Sean Spicer. And then days into the job, job, he provoked controversy after launching a strongly worded attack on the members of the Trump administration in an interview with the New Yorker's Ryan Litza that he believed was off the record. <laughs> Ten days after his appointment, he was dismissed by the new White House chief of staff, John F. Kelly, at the recommendation of, John, of President Donald Trump. And he's since been critical of Trump. So, like, he strikes me as a little bit of a buffoon. That's so perfect. Scaramuccia is literally little skirmisher, and he's a stock clown character and comedian. <laughs> I love you. Only you would wow. make that connection. I love it. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so, Anthony Scaramucci, the stock character, he's... <laughs> He, like I said, he gets himself tangled up in these curiosity killed the cat type situations, but he always manages to squeak by without facing consequences, typically by leaving an innocent bystander in his place. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Read into that what you will. I'm really Um, wishing, I'm really wishing I would have realized this earlier. These are the days that I kind of love and hate our policy of not telling me what's going to happen on the podcast beforehand because I would uh I would have done a little more specific Scaramucci research (laughs) but or you should just know more about politics geez Jesus Christ I mean that's true but like also who can fucking keep track at this point with the it's all just a blur moving on (laughs) So we have the next character, Trufaldino. He's usually like the son or the little brother of Arlecchino. He's sometimes substituted for Arlecchino. So a lot of the characteristics are the same. I won't go into it. But last we have Brigela. He's like the roguish jack-of-all-trades type. His loyalty is easily bought. He can be almost cruel when he jests at times. But he has a very sentimental view of love, so the Inamorati characters can always trust him. Mm. And he wears an olive green half mask with a hook nose and a mustache. And he wears like this full jacket and trousers with green brocade. Wow. If you it's looked just... at a picture, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm about to. What's the name of him? Brigela, B-R-I-G-H-E-L-L-A. Yeah, it's so interesting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so interesting hearing the descriptions of these different characters because you you describe them at the outset, as you should, as these stock characters. And they they do certain things, and you can tell 
You can tell by the way they move their walk, which one they are and how they look. Um, oh my God, kill me. That was so um, good. Oh my God, that was, that was fucking awesome. terrible. I need to be, I need to be drug out back and tied up to a post. Um, but as you're describing, first of all, the number of stock characters is a little surprising to me. Like, I guess I never realized how many there are. Um, and then the fact that there's like this class of like the the servant characters unless i'm misunderstanding you it seems like there's like a bunch like a, a cluster of them that have really nuanced responsibilities to the plot yes and i think i think i firmly believe that every opera singer, every theater person, everybody needs to study commedia because how many of the things that we do are actually based in these characters? Oh, totally. Like we could go back over the entire Barber of Seville episode and lay these commedia characters on top of it. I think that you could do it with modern, a lot, a lot of modern like uh, dramatic media as well, because just the way at the very beginning, the way you're describing, like, oh, you have to have the oh God, I'm gonna mess up all these names, but like the lovers, and you have to have somebody that is being mischievous and getting in their way. You have to have somebody that's like helping them and removing the obstacle. Like those are really basic tenets of how like we take for granted how stories are told in film and in TV and in books and whatever because it's that same kind of like basic pattern of events mm -hmm. and if it's not lovers it's the main character getting to their goal yeah but it really it really does almost I mean I don't want to say almost always but like in a, a lot of popular media anyways it follows the same tropes Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's we, a we tried so and true much... recipe. It don't is. Fuck, don't fuck with grandma's cookies. They're good. <laughs> what are you doing adding fucking nutmeg? Leave the nutmeg. <laughs> I lost what I was about to say because what you said was just so brilliant. Um, I'll just move on in my, in my outline here. <laughs> so good. like I said before, the way the comedia works is that there are outlines of a basic plot. There are fixed elements, like when characters enter or exit, but it's largely improvised. And there are um, a lot of stock bits that are, um, they're called Lazzi or stock comedic routines that are rehearsed ahead of time, but you don't necessarily know like what you're going to end up putting in the show. Each troupe would specialize in their own Lazzi and there would be like a trigger line that would set them into motion within this improvised play. So okay. they could be physical feats such as Arlecchino holding a full glass of wine and doing backward somersaults without spilling the wine, or they could be verbal jokes. They can pick on people in the audience that they're interacting with. They can have physical violence associated with them, such as pulling a chair out from underneath someone who's about to sit on it. Oh, good. You got to get that slapstick up in there. Right? This is like the origin of slapstick comedy. I'm telling you, there are a lot of Lazzi that have to do with food because Italy, such as a character seasoning a soup and then tasting it and then adding more seasoning and then tasting it again and continuing this process until there's no soup left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> See, it makes you laugh. <laughs> uh, it's like a 
It's a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's perfect. Exactly. Looney Tunes is Commedia dell'arte. I'm telling you, it's everything. But it's it's like considered lowbrow. It's like lowbrow entertainment. And yeah, sometimes they pick the low hanging fruit. But, right. Sure, you know, sure, sure. Yeah. So that is our first Deadly Warrior, the okay. lowbrow Commedia dell'arte. <laughs> So next up, we have the highbrow opera seria based on Greek mythology. Hmm. And we, as we mentioned in episode three, Daphna, Greek mythology has a really rich history of being interpreted in opera. Greek myths actually became the first operas because music yep. is the language of the gods. So it's not unusual for them to just burst into song. And Orpheus is a famous Greek musician, so it wouldn't be weird for him to burst into song, right? Right. So there are still operas being written on these Greek myth stories because there's just this wide abundance of them. And if you pick a story, you can kind of pick and choose which version of the story you want to use because while fixed points remain the same, there are vastly different details on of these myths based on wh- who's writing it, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the particular Greek myth we're talking about is, of course, Ariadne, who's stranded on the island of Noxos, hence mm. Ariadna of Noxos. Do you know this one at all? You know, I don't really. Colleen Meyer, the founder of Journey North Opera Company, has done this one and talks about it all the time. <laughs> and I still don't feel like I totally know what it's about. You will by the end of this podcast. Super. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> Just an aside, if you don't know this about me, I flip and love Greek mythology, and I oh, yeah, always have. And I dive down rabbit holes of Greek mythology, and I read like anything I can get my hands cool. on. Like, have you read Madeline Miller's Circe? Because dang, no, that's what you that's what you sent me as when we were doing research for this podcast was that I should listen to that other podcast, do a review of Circe. You should listen to the audiobook of Circe because the narrator has the most soothing, amazing narration voice. Anyway, I basically all this is to say I will very easily go down Greek myth rabbit holes. So please stop me. I don't know if I'll be able to because I too am a huge fan of Greek mythology and its various uh, reiterations throughout history. So then you, this is going to sound really familiar to you then. Ariadne is the daughter of King Minos of Crete. And there is a monster on Crete who happens to be Ariadne's half-brother half because her part titan, part nymph, mother Pasiphae had sex with the bull because she's insane. Minotaur. The Minotaur. Minotaur. Yeah. I, I say yep. Minotaur. Yeah. So there's her half-brother monster, the Minotaur. He's put in this labyrinth to keep him contained, and Ariadne is put in charge of this labyrinth. Why are you smiling at me? I'm just, no, I'm just, like, delighted that this is <laughs> starting out. Uh, what a shitty deal. Like, so, uh, your mother and I, <laughs> you're gonna have a new brother, and uh, you, you, you're gonna need to keep an eye on him, so we're just gonna keep you outside of this garden thing, and he's gonna run around in there and snarl and snurf, because he's got a big giant nose, because he's a fucking minotaur. Does that sound okay to you? You don't have any like after school activities you need to get to or anything, do you? Go get daddy some Marlboros. I love how I was warning you about me going on diatribes and then the opposite happened. So <laughs> I don't know how you could have ever, ever suspected that you were going to be the problem child in that area. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, 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 so at some point, 
depending on the version of the mythology you're reading, sacrifices become necessary. Whether they're in reparation to Poseidon or Athena, or if they're ordered by King Minos himself as retribution for his son who was murdered in Athens, it doesn't really matter. Basically, you need to know that 14 Athenians every year, seven men, seven women, need to be sent to Crete to be sacrificed to the Minotaur. And, you know, monsters got to eat, so. Um, Once a year, 14 people. Yep. <laughs> That's not how your diet works. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> so one of those years, the famous Greek hero Theseus volunteers to be one of the people sent so he can kill the Minotaur and end and the sacrifices for good. And Ariadne falls in love with Theseus and decides Aww. to help him kill her brother. Yeah, because she's freaking sick of standing guard outside the labyrinth. You could pretty much be a duck with two heads if you said you were going to come and take the minotaur out she'd be like marry me also theseus just gets a lot so like in greek uh, mythology, does he, so does he gets it know, he gets Congrats, it theseus. Congrats. <laughs> so to help theseus she gives him a sword to kill the minotaur and she gives him a ball of thread to tie near the entrance of the labyrinth and unravel it as he goes. Oh, so to find he, his way back out. Smart, smart. So he smart. gets to the Minotaur, slays him, and is able to follow the thread back out. And Ariadne is waiting for him back at the entrance of the labyrinth, and they elope, and they head back towards Athens, and they stop at the island of Naxos on the way, and Theseus abandons Ariadne on Naxos while she's sleeping. What? Why? <laughs> what a dick. Why? Yeah, so... This is he didn't fucking those... think to pack the thread. Fuck this guy. <laughs> fucking thread. Uh, uh, I know. I know. There are several versions, of course, because it's Greek mythology, several different reasons why this happens. One is that Athena is just like, hey, Theseus, come on this other quest with me. And he just lets Athena lead him back to his ship. And the other one is that Dionysus, a.k.a. Bacchus, a.k.a. the god of this podcast, he... <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I'm already out. <laughs> oh, dang it. We're almost ready for a break, I promise. I'll get you this. And then you can you can wind yourself to oblivion. Um, oh, no, good God, no. It's Tuesday. <laughs> So, so the other the other version is that Dionysus wants to claim Ariadne as his own, and so he appears to Theseus as they're sailing and says, "Hey, leave her on Naxos or face my wrath." And that's okay. like the Theseus gets to save face version because, mm. yeah. I mean, I feel like I guess I'm a little surprised that the Theseus doesn't get to save face version is just that he's distractible and wants to go be a hero again because the way you described him initially is that he can get it <laughs> so i was yeah. like well he just doesn't want to be he's not monogamous he doesn't want to be tied down right there's a point in greek myth where he actually kidnaps helen of troy before well helen of sparta before she's returned and then kidnapped by the trojans but anyway and rabbit anyway. hole so whatever version ariadne wakes up finds that Theseus is gone. She's distraught and then just like wants to die. And then enrolls jolly old Bacchus to comfort the girl, win her over, and they live happily ever after. 
Hang on. So the metaphor here is that her boyfriend leaves her, so she just starts drinking wine forever and ever until she dies. <laughs> Bacchus isn't wine incarnate. What the fuck are you talking about? Sure he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. How is Bacchus not wine incarnate? How is he not a metaphor for alcohol consumption? He's the god of many things. We just call him the god of wine because that's the most fun. They have five kids together. I don't know. I I mean, let's talk about how my daughter was conceived. And we're going to find out that my theory still holds up. (laughs) He's the Roman god or the Greek god of um, agriculture, wine, and fertility. Okay, so literally food, drink, and fucking come at me my theory is gold aka the god of having a good time all right that's legit that's legit okay so ariadne (laughs) i always transition with so this (laughs) i noticed that a lot as i edit this show um one of the first operas ever written is based on ariadne and you might actually be familiar with one of the surviving arias because it made it into the 24 italian songs and arias book it's Lasciate Mi Morire. It's the one-page piece in there. How does... Can you... Can you like Lasciate Mi Morire. Lasciate Mi Morire. It literally means let me die. Oh, my goodness. I don't think I ever did that one because I probably took a look at it and was like, one page? That's not a challenge. That's the opposite of every college student ever who's like, one page? Cool. One of my pieces for the semester. (laughs) (laughs) So Ariadne has been a popular story throughout history, especially in association with navigating labyrinths, naturally. Mm -hmm. Like, do you remember the movie Inception? Yeah. Ellen Page's character is named Ariadne because she designs labyrinth, labyrinth-like dreams and oh leads the characters gosh. to them. Wowie, that's just a cool blew your reference. mind. A little bit. I, I like that movie very much. I also like this South Park episode that makes fun of that movie because it's just funny and you know on the nose. Um, but yeah, that's. I, I always love getting a tidbit from a movie that I don't realize has got references later on. It's, it's, good, it's a good feeling. Did you ever watch the Netflix show Russian Doll? No, I haven't. I've heard nothing but good things and I just have yet to like press play. The last episode of the first season is called Ariadne because the characters are stuck in time loops and have to help each other escape. So it's like a labyrinth of time. Cool. Yeah. I like it. So those are our two contestants. We have Commedia dell'arte and we have Ariadne of Noxos. Any predictions as to how things are going to shake out when they're pitted against each other? No, I'm utterly confused as to how these two things are pitted against each other. I can see one being layered on top of the other but I really don't know how there's going to be some kind of contest we'll find out after a break all right 
Ariadne of Naxos is a one-act opera with a prologue. The entire thing lasts about 90 minutes. It's perfection. Yeah. The prologue takes place in the home of the wealthiest man in Vienna, and he is throwing a large, lavish dinner party, and he is arranged for entertainment for the evening. So for entertainment, we have the Commedia dell'arte troupe led by the saucy Zerbinetta, and we have the opera seria called Ariadne of Naxos, written by a character simply called Der Komponist, or the composer. And the groups are arguing about who should perform first. Okay, I dig this. I dig this as a premise. <laughs> so the major domo comes in to announce that dinner's gone on a little longer than planned. So the two performances, if they're both going to take place, have to happen have to happen at the same time, and they can't run a minute over time because there are fireworks scheduled for nine p.m. in the garden. Oh my god! So this is all in the prologue that this happens. Yep. It's amazing. This is very <laughs> clever. This is very clever, and I dig it. <clears throat> So the composer, who's a pants roll, by the way, but it's a soprano pants roll, mezzos do it because it's a pants roll, but honestly, it's best sung by a dramatic soprano. But anyway, the composer absolutely refuses to change a single note of his opera because it's perfect, thank you very much. And the music master tells him that his pay depends on performing, so he better buck it up and make the situation work. Mm Mm-hmm. And Zerbinetta, the leader of the Commedia dell'arte troupe, gets a little seductive with him, and mm. him being a man, he kind of falls for it and agrees to compromise. I mean. And Zerbinetta is cued into what the plot of the opera will be, so she can improvise based on the scenes and direct her troupe accordingly. There's actually this great exchange between the composer and Zerbinetta in which she cannot possibly wrap her head around the fact that Ariadne is just crying her eyes out over some guy. And, you know, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Like, why wouldn't she just pick another guy? This is all still the prologue? This is all still the prologue. How long is the prologue? Very short. What? <laughs> I feel like so much has happened. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like describing it's like it's a cacophony of chaos everybody's arguing okay. okay and I'm just picking out little snippets from it to tell you about it so the composer tries to tell Zerbinetta that Ariadne prefers death over the embraces of other men so he is just like gushing with sentimentalism and Zerbinetta is more like men are men whatever okay <laughs> And the performers of the opera company start arguing amongst themselves because none of them want their own arias to be cut. So the other performers' arias should be cut instead because mm-hmm. I need my stage time. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. And everything is chaos. And then the composer has this major epiphany, which I like to call mansplaining the aria. because amongst all of the chaos he's like no you guys i have the right answer i see everything clearly now music is the best art poets do like a decent job of writing words and making them art but nothing can compare to music and nothing can can do what music can and it's the holiest and highest of the arts and he the composer has the courage and the faith and the uh, of the power in uh, faith in the power of music the most sacred of arts and everything's going to go okay because the composer sees clearly So his proposal to solve the problem is shut up and trust me. Yeah. Okay. I I see it now. Honestly, like from a leadership standpoint, like when you have that little time, like I've definitely directed a show or two where it's like 
the dress rehearsal and you're like, guys, it's going to be great. It just is. I promise it will be. And everyone goes home like, okay. And you're like, oh God, I'm lying. <laughs> you just cross your fingers. <laughs> but the composer doesn't think he's lying because he just, he like really builds up like, I believe in the power oh, yeah, of you, music. No, you, you have to believe. You have to believe what you're saying. <laughs> you, have to, you have to do the mental gymnastics of getting yourself there before you can stand up in front of the room full of actors or singers and be like, it's going to be great. Gotcha. It's going to be super. <laughs> so I always, I always imagine the composer just like puffing himself up like a balloon in this, right? And then it all comes crashing down. He gets totally deflated because the Commedia troupe isn't listening. They're not taking him seriously. They're tumbling around the stage. And he storms off in a fury because his most sacred art is going to be ruined. He just has a hissy fit. And that is the end of the prologue. Okay. <laughs> so these two performance types have to happen simultaneously because if they don't they if they don't perform they don't get paid so of course they both want to perform yep i'm really curious to see a staging of this this sounds very funny and it's i good. like that it's interesting that you say it's funny because we're pitting comedy against seriousness and in your mind comedy is winning because when you pit comedy against seriousness, for one thing, the, the subject matter is going to dictate who wins. And this is not sufficiently tragic or realistic to let drama win, in my opinion. Plus, don't ever underestimate the power of an audience who wants to relax and be entertained to turn something that should be serious into a laughing moment, whether you want them to or not. Oh my God, that's so true. We've all fucking done it. We've all laughed uncomfortably when we wish we hadn't. And sometimes we accidentally start a wave of laughter. <laughs> and the performers are like... I'm literally dying on stage. Why are they laughing? <laughs> <laughs> That's so accurate. That's so accurate. Oh, man. Nursing the egos of lovely, delicate high school actors through their peers in a matinee performance, laughing at the wrong moments, will never leave your memory. <laughs> <laughs> labor. That, yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You have to get a whole new relationship with that particular <laughs> social faux pas. <laughs> it's so true. I love your perspective on this because I have never thought of it from that perspective before. But yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> it's gonna win. Like comedy wins because unless unless we're like murdering people. Unless we're murdering innocents at an astounding rate, I just don't think, I think it's the subject matter that, that dictates whether comedy or drama is going to win, and this is just not sufficiently dramatic. Fair. Well, the opera itself opens with Ariadne. She's been abandoned by Theseus. She is just abandoned on the isle of naxos nobody's oh, so we there pick up, we pick up after she's been abandoned gotcha. yeah <clears throat> she's just abandoned her 
or he's abandoned her and she's just distraught and she just cries all the time on this deserted island. And <laughs> she's currently asleep in front of a cave that she maybe lives in, presumably. And there are three nymphs there that nobody could see because they're nymphs. There's Naiad, Dryad, and Echo. And yes, it's the echo you're thinking of because she often repeats what other people say at the opera and it's really great. So they sing about how they feel sorry for poor Ariadne and her sad fate and they've just become accustomed to her weeping because so much time has passed and all she does is cry. So like, I feel sorry for you, but like, it doesn't go beyond that because you've been doing this for a long time. She's that one friend. (laughs) You're like, okay, honey. Yep. Okay. And then Ariadne wakes up and she sings about her distress and she mourns her lost Theseus and she just hopes to die. And meanwhile, Zerbinetta and the Commedia troupe are on stage and they're making commentary on her distress and trying to find ways to comfort her. And the prima donna singing Ariadne has to get through this massive aria while... Like trying to get through this whole serious thing while this comedy troupe is trying to distract her and cheer her up and snap her out of it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we get the aria Escape Dein Reich, which Colleen Meyer, one of our guests from episode nine, sings the shit out of, if you have ever heard her sing it. It's so good. And when the aria is over, the Commedia troupe attempts to sing, dance, tumble, just do whatever they can to cheer up poor Ariadne, but nothing works. So eventually, Zerbinetta shoes the boys of the troupe off stage just to see what she can do with Ariadne one-on-one. And she sings her famous Grossmächtige Prinzessin scene. It's like, it's a scene, it's an aria, it's like 12 minutes long. It is a feat for the coloratura soprano and there is nothing that compares to it it is insane how much stamina it's like it's like singing the queen of the night aria like four or five times in a row and then some it is a feat of stamina (sighs) and in this aria she attempts to appeal to ariadne woman to woman saying you know let bygones be bygones wow i'm stumbling over my words a lot because why let bygones be bygones because he's only a man just pick another one and during the scene the four other comedia troop guys come out and they try to pursue zerbinetta and she rejects them one by one and she eventually chooses harlequin so 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 this is like literally (laughs) the comedia people are trying to do their separate storyline layered over the top of the ariadna storyline so what they're doing is because what Commedia does is it takes a story and they improvise on it. So they're trying to put themselves in the Ariadna story while still using stock tropes of Commedia. Right. right. And this just seems like a moment in which they're like, I'm not sure how else we're going to fit this in. So let's go on stage right now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's delightful. <laughs> oh my God. Um. <laughs> Um, so Zerbinetta, if you haven't figured it out, she's like the Columbina stock character, mm-hmm, and she ends mm-hmm. up with Arlecchino, so that fits the trope, and then the other three guys get angry, and before they can act out on their anger, the scene is interrupted with the three nymphs, Naya, Dryad, and Echo coming back to announce the arrival of another god on the island, and Ariadne, oh, I didn't tell you that during Zerbinetta's big scene, when Zerbinetta's like really trying to convince her to cheer up, Ariadne just disappears into the cave and Zerbinetta either doesn't notice or just doesn't fucking care. 
She's like, I'm just going to sing about my theories on love for 12 fucking minutes. Whether oh, you listen my goodness. Or not. <laughs> so at this point, Ariana emerges from the cave at this news, and she's hoping that the approaching goddess Hermes, the messenger god, come to lead her soul to death. But it's the opposite. It's Bacchus, the god of wine and having a good time. And Bacchus falls in love with Ariadne, and Ariadne is comforted by him, and she forgets about Theseus. And he promises to make her into a constellation, which Ariadne is a constellation, by the way. And they sing this ridiculously long love duet, and Wagner would be so proud of it because it is so Wagnerian. And of course, amongst their, their lover song zerbinetta just like pops her head in to say everything worked out exactly as i planned and my my love philosophy works every time like when a new love comes into your life you just you gotta yield to it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's it the end that that's it okay i can't i can't do it justice like how do you describe (laughs) how do you describe a comedy how does you describe? I mean, I think uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm very bad at telling jokes. I'm the person in the room that when I open my mouth to start telling a joke, all my friends go, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is fun. This is um, this this sounds like a fun one for sure. And I'm scrolling through the Wikipedia page and looking at a couple of different pictures of different stagings and it looks very fun my heart feels a little bit lighter talking about this this has been a (laughs) I don't know if you guys have noticed but it's been a little bit of a tumultuous year um and this this was fun to talk about and I don't have anything super critical to say which probably doesn't make for good content but I'm just like delighted we we talked about this a little bit last time with Strauss in Daphna and how forward looking and liberal thinking he was for somebody writing in the early 1900s and to have Mm -hmm. a woman in charge of a commedia troupe and to say that like love can be fickle if you want it to Mm -hmm. like that's that's astounding because I would yeah. actually argue that Zerbinetta is probably the protagonist of this entire yeah, show. Yeah, well, and she's very like first wave feminist, which right? is kind of like in like 1916. Yeah, which is kind of nuts. Um, yeah, forward thinking that's triggering a memory. Was I was doing a little bit of more in depth research about Strauss today because again, I we delved into. The basics of Strauss as well as his relationship to the Nazi regime um, in the in episode three. But somebody in one of the, the biographies I was peeking through or listening to um, called him forward thinking. They said he was either extremely forward thinking or totally batshit because in the wake of World War II, when all the opera houses were just like destroyed and it, it struck me as just a sort of metaphor for what we're experiencing right now with COVID where nobody's performing and yet all these companies are trying to remain relevant. But he continued to compose basically with a color and a optimism and a sense of innovation that didn't make any sense when juxtaposed against the background of like the aftermath of war and the obliteration of 
arts and culture by war and it was just like he just kept on chugging and it was he, he's either crazy or he's extremely forward thinking and has faith that this is going to continue on and like what's the next thing that art's going to be doing what's the next thing that music's going to be doing and one of the main reasons that he said that he took the position as the was it reich's music commander like the commander of the third third reich's music basically yeah yeah um, he took the job because he wanted to make sure, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, that these darn Cretans in charge of the Third Reich didn't just completely whitewash all of the music to be this nationalist, brainless garbage, and that he could like kind of drive a little bit of the culture's music media intake over the next like like he knew shit was going down to a degree to a degree that anybody did and he was like they're not going to take our music with them <laughs> and i'm not going to let this happen <laughs> so yeah strauss is kind of a badass i love it and also just thinking about the character of the composer and how he takes himself way too seriously yeah. and when you think about the plot of the opera seria it would probably suck without the commedia on top of it oh, people yeah. would probably be bored to tears and so which, it's like strauss making fun of himself in some ways which is fabulous on the flip side if it was only the commedia would it be too low brow do they get too stuck in a low brow rut so is oh, this this serious subject matter giving them something new to riff on and something absolutely different and not just serious but like there's character development in it right there's like an actual mm -hmm. story there and this is kind of what we've talked about a little bit last time with um the nightingale and like large choruses and how if you start to have a story that relies on all this spectacle, you start losing the quality of compelling characters and stories that make you want to know what happens. And I think the same can be true for slapstick and like lowbrow comedy. Like it's a pendulum. Like you, it's it's like a it's like a Likert scale. You know, you can swing too far on one side or the other. And you're just going to lose half your audience on either side. Some people really dig the lowbrow humor, but they can't stand the serious. And some people are really big into the serious, but they can't stand the lowbrow. But if we find that sweet spot in the middle, we catch everybody. Yes. Yes. And that's dope. <laughs> I, I think this opera is the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. it's why i love it so much i mean I, i've never seen it but conceptually it's very very clever and i would love to see it done if you're gonna watch just anything in this watch the derbinetta scene and watch it specifically sung by erin morley because she is a goddess she just did it here at minnesota opera a few seasons ago but there's this really great production where her dress kind of looks like a cherry like it's like this cherry ball on the bottom i don't know it's great but at one point she has to like slide down a piano lid while singing and she doesn't miss a beat and it is some of the best healthiest singing i have heard in forever she is just a goddess so I'll do you have YouTube links that can go up on the site for that? That's oh, amazing. I will find it and share it. I think the entire thing has been taken down, but snippets of it are still out there. So yeah, sure. that's it's just it's just a delightful idea. I'm just 
Thank you. Thank you for telling me about this very fun story tonight, Tina. Thank you for ending up loving it as much as I do, because (laughs) it always sucks when I come into something super enthusiastic and then you're like, man, (laughs) nothing. What have I done that that about? What have I done that about? I don't know. I'm just always afraid you're not going to like it. Aw, Tina, it's my job to not like it. That's what makes the podcast funny. <laughs> I had a feeling you would like this one, though. So thank this you for, for actually. funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's about the time where we tell everybody, thank you for listening. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit our Facebook page or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Yes, indeedy. And you can subscribe, smash it, smash the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please rate and review us because it helps people find the show and also it gives us a reason to live. (laughs) All right. Drum roll, please. As I open my book. Oh or God. don't. You never give me a drum roll. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks. Next week, we are finally going to dive into Wagner. I'm a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. Wagner, Wagner is loaded. Wagner is loaded. We Wagner can pick on loaded. the anti-Semitism all we want. We specialize in that in Aubrey Half Hour. We do specialize in picking on the horribleness in Opera Plot Happy Hour, but man, oh man, oh man. <sighs> Wagner. All right. Well, you know, guys, this has been fun. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. I really did. Uh, this was a delightful opera to learn about, and I want to go watch, especially because it's so short, um, whatever I can find and get my hands on on the interwebs of Ariadna Afnaxos by Ruth Fred Strauss, who is just a bamf if I ever read about one. Uh, And tonight I'm going to leave you with the words of everybody's favorite evil character from Inglorious Bastards or Big Eyes or any of the other films that he's been in, Christoph Waltz. And he says, I'm going to try to do his accent. For a while, I couldn't decide whether or not I should pursue singing in the opera or acting. And I'm glad that I chose the latter because I wasn't a very good singer. (laughs) 